Hi, this is Mike. Thank you for being a part of what God's doing at the Heights Fellowship. We hope you enjoy this message. We know it's not the same thing as being here in person, but we pray that God would move as you listen and as God applies this to your heart. So you ever had one of those Bibles? When you turn to the Gospels, turn to the New Testament, when Jesus says something, it's in a different colored ink. We call those red letter editions, right? Have you ever noticed how we tend to pay more attention to those words? I've actually had people in conversations tell me, well, this one's more valid because Jesus said it. Guys, do you remember the testimony of Scripture that every word of God is inspired? That all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable? There's no more validity to something Jesus spoke in the Gospels than something that a prophet spoke in Proverbs or Isaiah or somewhere. And that's not heretical to say that at all. It's all the Word of God. That's why God has preserved it. We tend to give more validity to those red letters for some reason. And it got me to thinking, what about some of the things God said that we need to pay better attention to, pay more attention to? Well, last series, we were in this whole concept, this whole mindset of hearing God speak, right? So we talked about all through the spring, and we finished that last week. Well, the next step, kind of the logical place to go from there is to look at some of the things that God has said and say, hey, we need to focus in and zoom in on these for a minute. Well, so we want to look at the questions God asks. God asks a lot of questions. We tend to think that human beings ask a lot of questions of God. You know, I think God asks more questions of us. So I want to start with a couple of questions, a couple of statements, true or false. First one is this, true or false, the opposite of faith is doubt. Now, in our mindset, we've, done, we've even taught in the past, you know, the whole idea of doubting Thomas. He didn't have the faith. I want to step back and look at that for a minute because I tend to believe that doubt is the backdrop where faith makes its living. Without doubt, you can't really have faith. You remember the definition, the biblical definition of faith found over in Hebrews 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, faith lives, thrives in the midst of of doubt. Faith is about making a commitment or making a decision about matters that you probably can't prove in some measurable way, right? And so I would say this statement that faith is the opposite of doubt is false. But the question then is, okay, then what is the opposite of doubt? And I want you to think this through with me. I think it's certainty. We are so sure that if I do this, then that will happen. We are programmed in our culture with if-then thinking. If I pray this, then God has to do that. You even find whole religions where people say, is there a prayer for, and there's written or prescribed prayers for certain events or circumstances or things that happen. That's all couched in certainty. The opposite of faith is certainty because certainty only lives when something can be proven without a doubt. And so one of the questions that we're going to ask at the end this morning is, hey, are you a person of faith or a person of certainty? One of the places we see that is in a statement like this. 
Lots, I just went on the, on the uh, internets, on the interwebs, and found uh, just, you know, bumper stickers about Jesus is the answer, and we say that all the time. In an uncertain time, in, in, when, world, when the world is in some sort of cataclysm or chaos, we are very quick to say, well, Jesus is the answer. When we have political turmoil in the United States, the answer is, well, Jesus is the answer. And, and I understand, I think, the sentiment behind that. I'm not sure I know that we understand what we mean. So the second question I would ask is, do you think Jesus answers all of life's questions? It's kind of a tricky question. I mean, here's what we know. We know for certain that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the answer to sin and lostness. That's a given. That Jesus is the sole source, see what I did there? Is the sole source for our redemption. That Jesus will ultimately, as it says in Colossians 1, reconcile all things to himself. But guys, i got to be honest. I don't know that Jesus is the answer man that we expect him to be. And here's why I say that. I've been reading a book called The 307 Questions Jesus Asked. And the guy that wrote it says, you know, contrary to common assumption, Jesus is not the ultimate answer man, but more like the great questioner. In the Gospels, Jesus asks many more questions than he answers. That'll get you thinking. In fact, he asks 307 questions. He has asked 183 questions. So that's almost 500 questions right there. He only answers three. By the way, by my count, he answers eight. But it doesn't matter. That's single digits. The, the point is simply this. In the Gospels, Jesus is 40 times more likely to ask a question than he is to give a direct answer. Now, just kind of process through that. When I was being trained in ministry, my mentor, the, the guy that spoke more into my life than anybody who's ever lived, was a guy named Jeff Bearden. I've described Jeff to you. I just did his funeral a year or so back. I mean, great man of God, lots of experience. He had like five PhDs. He was super smart. He was one of those guys who loved school and loved thinking and loved, you know, education and all those kind of things. And, and he's just a, a really cool dude. He was notorious because I have all these questions. My wife and my daughter will tell you, oh my gosh, you don't just get one question from Mike. You get just a question and a follow-up and a follow-up and a follow-up. And he'll just wear you out with questions. My wife's back there nodding. I would ask all these questions. And Jeff was notorious for saying, I don't know, son. What do you think about that? Why don't you do a study and get back to me? And then we'll both know. He knew the answer, but what he was doing was drawing me in to an understanding of that by asking me a question. And I'm not going to lie, it was frustrating. There were a few times I probably swore at him because it's just I wanted an answer right then. Well, that's the way we are with God, and yet you'll see Jesus doing the same thing, and I'll bet you that's where Jeff got it. I just am suspicious, you know, after studying this. So why does God ask so many questions? Let me give you several reasons to kind of get us onto the on-ramp of this message, all right? First of all is this. Questions 
prompt conversation, especially if they're open-ended questions. If you've ever led a small group, if you've led a seminar, a talk back time, those kind of things, you're trained to speak in open-ended questions. Not yes or no answers, but why do you think? Why would you say this is? Kind of open-ended thought. Those kind of questions prompt conversation, and conversation feeds relationship. And the point is that that God asking us questions demonstrates that he has a desire for us. We just sing a song about it. Oh, how he loves us. All right? God has this deep desire, and he wants a conversational relationship with us. That was what the last series was about, a conversation with God. And so his questions are framed to engage us. We're going to talk about a bunch of them uh, later on today. Uh, Copenhaver, the guy that wrote that book, goes on to finish the thought with this. He says, you know, the questions Jesus asked have particular power to engage us, especially over time. Some of Jesus' questions are very straightforward. But many more are more like his parables in that there's more than one way to interpret them. We see something different in them each time we encounter them. And as such, they are evocative. They are designed to evoke something in us. Now, let me give you an example of that. Over in John chapter 1, it's the story of the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And if you remember, there was a predecessor to Jesus. There was a a precursor. There was somebody who came to pave the way and set it all up, kind of the opening act. And it was John the Baptist. John had a ministry before Jesus had a ministry. John had followers before Jesus had followers. And one day, John was talking to two of his followers. By the way, just in case you don't know, those two followers were the Apostle Andrew and the Apostle John. They were John the Baptist disciples before they were Jesus' disciples. Well, John the Baptist sees Jesus, and he walks by and he says, there is the Lamb of God right there. Well, John and Andrew go, wait, what? Because John's very clear, I'm not Messiah, but he says, there he is. And so they take out after Jesus, and they're kind of, if you've ever seen somebody famous in person, you kind of don't want to walk right up to them. You're a little intimidated, that, so you kind of hang back, but you kind of keep them in sight. Well, Jesus knows this, and at some point, he turns around, and his very first comment in the Gospel of John is a question. What do you want? I see it this way as him going, hey, fanboys, what do you want? And they say, rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? That's a weird question, but you understand what they're saying is, we want to have a conversation with you. We need to know where to go to have that conversation. And so Jesus tells them, come and see. And if you know the rest of the story, they're both convinced. They become believers that day. Andrew goes and gets his brother Peter, or Simon as he was called at the time, and brings him to Jesus the next day. John obviously goes and gets his brother James and brings him at some point too. But Jesus' whole question, what do you want, was not a, hey, get out of here, punks. It was more like, what do you really want? So let me ask you a question. If the Lord were to stop and turn and look at you and put his eyes on you and ask you the same question, what would you say? This morning, what do you want? Interesting that Jesus is trying to engage us. The second reason that God asks so many questions is this. The questions, believe it or not, show that God provides 
us with an element of dignity. Think about it. If God hated us, if God had disdain for us, if God didn't care about us, he would just make some declarative statement to us and just let it be so and move on, go on and leave us alone. But the fact that he questioned us shows that he's trying to draw us in rather than send us or drive us away. A lot of people believe that Christianity Christianity always provides us with very, very clear answers. But God engages our intellect. God engages our emotion. That's part of the way we are made with him. And so he asks us questions to stimulate some kind of conversation in us. And we need to understand that God isn't insulting us when he asks us questions. And there's a whole list of them we're going to look at over the next several weeks. We'll look at a bunch of them today. God's never insulting He's not making fun of us. He's not just kind of playing with us. He's asking because he gives us great dignity to try to draw us in to the relationship. And so he questioned us. Let me give you an example. Over in Matthew 21, Jesus is teaching and he comes to the temple. And it says that the chief priest and the elders of the people came to him and they begin to question Jesus. Now, they're trying to figure out a way to, to condemn Jesus, to convict him, to get rid of him, to kill him. These are not Jesus' friends. These are not sympathetic, loyal, you know, positive people around him. These people are looking. They're haters. And yet, Jesus deals with them with much dignity. They are the educated elite of their day. They are the scholars of the scholars. They are the teachers of the teachers. So they come to Jesus. They're trying to figure out a way to trap him. And they say, okay, we got a question for you, boy. By what authority are you doing the things? Who gives you the permission to do the things you're doing? Where are you getting permission to do this? Because you're a radical. And so Jesus answers them with a question. He said, okay, I'm going to ask you something. And and once you answer me, then I'll answer you. By what authority or by what is the baptism of John? Talking about John the Baptist again. Where does that come from? Is it from God or is it from man? Well, this is a dilemma because John was enormously popular. I mean, the the people were like radically following John the Baptist. And if they were to say, he is not of Satan or he is not of God, he is of Satan, he is of man, then the people would riot and they'd have chaos on their hands. And so they're too good of politicians to answer it. Well, we really, you really want to know, I don't think he's a real deal. I think he's a fraud. I think he's on his own authority. So they're not going to say that. But if they say God, then Jesus is going to look at them and say, then why won't you believe him? They know the scriptures. They have all the evidence in front of them, and they are willfully rejecting that. Jesus asked them a question with great dignity to draw them into an honest conversation about eternity and about Messiah. They won't have it. And so he says, okay, I'm not going to answer your question either. And he shrugs them off. But God gives them great dignity. Look at the way he deals with them. He's not insulting them. Number three, God asks a lot of questions because questions reveal stuff. Not information for information's sake, but reveal stuff to forge an intimacy with us. Sometimes God will tell us stuff about himself. We're going to look at one of those big ones later on at the end of the message today. Sometimes God reveals something about us to ourselves. Let me give you an example of that, a couple of them. 
Mark chapter 8, Jesus asked the disciples, okay, what are they saying about me? Who do people say that I am? And the disciples give all the Sunday school answers. Some say Elijah, some say uh, John the Baptist or one of the other prophets. Jesus says, who do you, notice he doesn't respond to that. He said, okay, who do you say that I am? Who am I? Well, Peter pops off. I mean, his, his mouth starts working for his brains engaged, which was an ongoing problem with Peter, by the way. But this time he's right. He says, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, you remember, compliments him and says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. That's not man-made wisdom. That's something that God spoke to you. You're responding the words of God. Jesus immediately begins, as that is very true, to tell them stuff about the plan. Listen, guys, remember, Messiah is going to be a beaten, bruised, broken Messiah, according to Isaiah 53. He's going to be crucified, according to Psalm 22. He's going to be sacrificed for the sins of his people. Remember all of that prophecy. Well, that's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. I'm going to be killed. But the third day, I'm going to rise, just like it talked about in the scripture. He begins to show them more and more stuff about himself by asking them questions. Here's another one in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to talk about this next time. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve have eaten the apple. They've sinned. They've, they realize all of a sudden they're disgraced and they're shamed and they, they hide from God and they've covered themselves with, with fig leaves to try to cover their nakedness and God comes walking through the garden and he calls to them and he says, where are you? Now remember, God didn't, didn't have a lack of problem finding them. That wasn't the point of the question. The point of the question was much more personal to them. He wanted them to know what had happened to them, to acknowledge where they were. That's the kind of stuff God asks us. And he wants an honest response. Lord, we ate from that fruit, and all of a sudden we're naked and we're ashamed. We used to be naked and unashamed, and now we're scared of you and what's going to happen. We realize the relationship's been severed. What do we do? We need mercy. We need grace. Help us out. And instead, they say, well, listen, uh, we were hiding from you uh, because we were afraid and we were naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? I didn't tell you that. Their, their innocence had been stolen by their sin. God's revealing to them things about themselves. So questions reveal a fourth thing. Questions disarm us and they call us to action. Sometimes they challenge us about our relationships. Sometimes they give us a realistic perspective about our world. But they compel us to some kind of action. Remember, information is not God's goal. Transformation is God's goal. If it was information, he'd just give us a lecture all the time. But God wants us to understand. And so his questions are transformational. Look at this one over in Genesis chapter 4. This is the story of Cain and Abel. This is before Cain murders Abel. They bring their offerings to the Lord. God is, first of all, the question is, well, how do they know to bring offerings? Obviously, God had instructed them what to do. And there was a certain kind of offering that God had prescribed. For this type of offering, obviously, he had prescribed a blood sacrifice, an animal, something from, from the herd. I think it was a lamb. The Bible doesn't tell us that. That's just what I believe. Well, that's what Abel brings. But Cain's lazy. He's going to do it his own way. And so he brings an offering of grain. Nothing wrong with that. There are places in the Old Testament that's prescribed, but not for this offering. 
And God rejects Cain's offering. And Cain's mad. Cain's offended. His feelings are hurt. And he immediately reacts to that. And the Lord says to him a question. Why are you angry? I mean, the Lord could have lectured him. But the Lord wasn't trying to just give him information. Hey, you're an idiot. Hey, you're selfish. Hey, you're lost. Hey, you're fallen. He's trying to draw it out of him. He says, why, why do you think you're angry? Why has your countenance fallen? Well, the response should have been, Lord, I know I should have brought a blood offering. I should have gone to Cain or gone to Abel and bartered with him, traded him grain for flock or whatever and brought that to you. I, I made a mistake. I sinned. He didn't do that. He ignores God and goes and murders his brother. But God was trying to bring some transformation to his life. Hey, why are you angry? Why, why, are you, why do you think your countenance has fallen? But today, as we get that, we look at those four things. I want to consider Job. And I don't know if you've ever read much of Job. You probably know the story. You probably heard about the patience of Job and the suffering of Job and all those kind of things. But I want to walk you through that. Here's what it says about Job. I want you to consider him for a minute. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. If you wanted a resume to really, really show that you were a spiritual giant, there's your resume. He is blameless, which means his sin had been taken away, that the Lord had forgiven him. He believed in the sacrifice of the Lord. He saw forward to Christ and understood that. Okay? He feared God. He considered God. He respected God in all of his ways. He turned away from evil, and so he walked, as the Scripture says, upright. Pretty impressive. Not only that, he had seven sons and three daughters who were born to him. His possessions were also 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. That man was the greatest of all the men in the East. Let me put it to you this way. He had a huge portfolio. He was doing well in the market, baby. He was wealthy and satisfied and content. God had blessed him. Story goes on. His sons used to go and hold a feast on their birthdays at the house of one on his day. That's his birthday. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with him. And it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job thought, he said to himself, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. In other words, he was a godly man who was protecting and watching over the spirituality of his family. And he was constantly communicating communicating that to them and watching out for them in that regard. He was a really impressive dude. Now, here's the background. Certified, card-carrying, godly dude. A legitimately blessed human being. He worked at his faith. Not worked for his faith, but at his faith. But God had allowed Satan to sift his life. God looks at Satan and says, have you considered Job? That's the kind of work I do. And, and Satan says, Job only does that because you bless him. Take his blessing away and he'll curse you. God said, okay, go ahead. He's not going to curse me. By the way, God's proved right. The Lord looks at Satan and says, you can do anything you want to, to him, but you can't take his life. That's the only caveat. And so chapters 1 through 37 of Job, that's what they are. They are God, uh, Satan really dealing with Job. And Job ends up with four friends who are just 
terrible, terrible, terrible theologians, friends, and counselors. They're telling Job, you had to have done something wrong. That's why all this bad stuff has happened. God's mad at you. God hates you. You need to own that and move on. And go keep, Job keeps saying, no, that's, I'm walking with God. I, I would know. And for 37 chapters, Job is responding to what he calls his miserable comforters with this one question. Why me? What, what did I do? Listen to what he says in, ver- in chapter 10, verse 1. This is an example of Job's posture. I hate my life. You ever felt that way? Some of you guys can honestly say this morning, that's me. He said, so I'm going to complain without holding back. I'm going to speak because I'm so unhappy. I'm so frustrated. And I'm going to say to God, do not hold me guilty, but tell me what you have against me. Why are you mad at me, God? What did I do? You ever found yourself asking that kind of question? We're not that much different than people in the Bible, then, are we? And so Job's contending with all of this. I love the way Chris Holdsworth says this next part. He says, after all the crying and sighing and moaning and groaning of Job, and by the way, I don't blame him, and all the blaming and shaming and sharing and tearing of Job's miserable comforters, the Lord answers Job. And he answers him with a question. In fact, a lot of questions. 60 questions. If you read chapters 38 through 41. It's the longest list of questions found in the Bible. And check this out. It's not people asking God questions. It's God asking us questions. He's asking Job questions. Here's a sample of what they look like. Chapter 38, verse 1. The Lord answers Job out of the storm and he says, Who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Hey, what, what are you saying? Do you hear yourself? That's, that's kind of the vernacular. Brace yourselves like a man. I'm going to question you and you're going to answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? By the way, pay attention here. God immediately goes to creation. Okay? Not is just a myth, not as just a, a fun, sweet idea that we tell our kids, but as fact. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Did you stretch a measuring rod across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid the cornerstone while the morning stars, those are angels, sang together with all the angels, and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind its doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed the limit for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further. Here is where your proud waves halt. And it's just a list from then on of question after question after question. Stuff like this. Who is it that darkens my counsel? Where were you when I laid the foundations? Have you ever in your life done this or seen that? How do you find the dwelling of light? Can you lift your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water, so that rain comes and covers you? Is it by your understanding that the hawk source, who made the birds so they could fly. How was that programmed into them? Who has given to me that I should be, should I, that I should repay him? Whatever is under heaven is mine. And and so as we look at that, I want you to see all those things that we just talked about, the reasons that God questions. I want you to see them come to play in Job's life. The first thing that you see is that God draws Job into a greater conversation. It's not just about Job and his misery here and now. It's a question about eternity. Look at the things he says to him, the questions he asks. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? That's way back. 
Hey, hey, Job, have the gates of death been revealed to you? Job, have you ever seen the gates of the deep darkness? Do you understand where life's source is and where it ends and what happens to it? Job, who has put wisdom in the inmost being or who has given the mind understanding? If you've read Romans 1, this is a direct, Paul references back to this. When Paul says God has put his testimony in the minds and in the conscience of every man in every place who has ever lived so that if they reject Christ, they are without excuse because that is an inner witness God has given to every human being. Anywhere, any place, any time. God looks at Job and says, Who put wisdom in the inmost being? Who did that? Who gave the mind understanding? That was me, not you. Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Wow, that's an indictment. You're really going to say that I'm an unfair God? Do you not understand that you deserve to die? period, because you're sinful, that you get any grace at all is a gift. That's what that's saying. Or, or where is he that can stand before me? You're not going to do that in your humanness. It'll have to be on the basis of grace. Now, Job knows all these things as we see as it plays out. In fact, I challenge you, go back and read through Job this week. It's a tough read, but it's a really, really good read. He talks to him about eternity. Second thing he talks to him about, he talks to him about his intricate knowledge. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? That whole line there. He says over in, in chapter and verse 12, have you ever in your life commanded the morning? Listen, the morning doesn't just happen. I command the morning and cause the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. I'm the one who brings light, in other words, I'm the light bringer. Verse 19, he says, where is the way to the dwelling of light? Do you understand the source of light at all? And so he talks to Job about how much more knowledge that he has. He's revealing that to him. He's detailing that for him. But not only his knowledge, he talks to him about his intricate or infinite and intimate power. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades? What is Pleiades? That's a constellation. In the sky. Are you the one who set Pleiades in the sky where it is, the way it is, so it can be seen in the night sky? Did you do that? Or what about the cords of Orion, another constellation? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season? And God's talking about his control, not just of the earth, but of the cosmos. Can you guide the bear with her satellites? Interestingly, he's talking about satellites that that orbit something. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Chapter 40, verse 9, do you have an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like His? And then this is a double blessing right here, right? Behold now behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. The bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He says, whatever behemoth is, I made him and I made you. Now let me ask you a question. Do you know what behemoth is? It's not a hippopotamus. That's one of the things the theologians say. It's not an elephant. They don't have tails like a cedar, do they? 
the truth is, theologians will tell you, we don't know what behemoth is. Let me tell you what I think behemoth is. Dinosaur. And God says to Job, I made them and I made you. And notice that Job has awareness of what they are. It's as if Job has seen them because God describes them to him. I believe early man saw dinosaurs. I believe there were dinosaurs, dinosaur types on the ark. They couldn't stand the environment post-ark, post-flood, and they died out. But here's a biblical reference. So you can go back and tell your kids, hey, we talked about dinosaurs in church. But he looks at Job and he says, did you make the dinosaur? I made the dinosaur and I made you. I have infinite, intimate, intricate power. And then God's questions leave Job to a whole different posture. Job has angrily, angrily been challenging God. Show me what I've done wrong. Answer me. And when God's finished, Job looks at God and says, I get it. I'm insignificant. I've been put in my place. What can I reply to you? I'm going to cover my mouth. I will speak no evil. Once I have spoken, I will not answer even twice, and I will add no more. And not only that, it resulted in Job knowing God much more intimately. Listen to what Job says. You know, I said, I will speak, I will question you. And you said, go, go ahead and speak. I'm going to speak and I'm going to answer. I'm going to question you. And you're going to answer me. And Job says, you know, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I've encountered you for real. And I despise myself. In other words, I realize I'm a sinner and I repent in dust and ashes had a whole new understanding and respect for God because of the questions that God had asked him. The story is told of a professor at a Bible college, very renowned, very highly regarded, who got to the end of his career. And uh, he was going to retire, and so everybody knew it. And the day of his last lecture, the faculty piled in there, the regents piled in there, the students piled in there. Everybody was there to hear him one last time. Well loved, well regarded. He finishes his lecture to this thunderous applause. They're giving him a standing O as he's walking out the door. He gathers up his books and he's leaving. He stops at the door and he turns to them and he says, hey guys, just remember, Jesus is the question to all of your answers. What a great statement. Let me ask you something this morning. What is Jesus questioning in you? Hey, man, why do you respond that way? What, what do you, where do you think that comes from? Hey, why, why do you have that kind of frame of, of mind? Where do you think your materialism comes from? Where do you think your substance abuse comes from? Where do you think your anger comes from? came out of? What's the source of that? What do you think? What questions is Jesus asking you? What questions about your life or about eternity is God asking you this morning? Some people it may be, you know what? Have you ever really trusted me? 
I mean, you've been in church, you've been religious, you may have read the Bible, gone to Sunday school or vacation Bible school, but have you ever really trusted me? Not the institution or something. Have you trusted me? Maybe this morning God is saying, hey, how about it? Trust me now. Trust me here. Trust me today. Maybe God is asking you, or he was saying, hey, are you more faithful or are you more certain? Because so many of us in the West and Christianity just have this mindset that if I do this, then God has to do that. And when it doesn't turn out that way, we question God. God's saying, maybe you need to have faith in me and not be certain in the process. Or maybe God is saying, hey, how do you handle it when I don't give you a direct answer? Well, when you don't find it necessarily written out in black and white in the scripture, how, how do you take the next step? What do you do? Which was what the last series was about, by the way. But what questions is God asking us in our time? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. Father, we thank you for the songs we've sung, for the prayers we've prayed. We thank you as we've opened the scripture. Maybe for the first time, some of us have really noticed, man, God asks a lot of questions. Father, as your spirit begins to take those and maybe apply them to our own experience in our own lives, that we would be transparent and honest with you and say, here's the deal. I don't know. I realize I have more doubt than I thought, and my faith needs to, to respond in that environment. Or maybe, Lord, we found out we're more certain than we are faithful. And as you've made us kind of insecure, maybe materially or maybe physically or maybe emotionally, that we need to lean into you and say, okay, Jesus, help me to trust you and follow you into this. Father, maybe this morning there's some who have never trusted you as Savior, and this is the time and the place. And right here in the middle of this prayer, they can just call out and say, Jesus, I don't understand it. I don't get it. I just believe the cross. I believe you rose from the grave. Lord, as we explore this series on the God who questions, that we would be transformed, not by the information, but by your Spirit applying the truth. And we being different because of it. Bless these people this week, Lord. Watch over them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for being a part of what God's doing here at the Heights Fellowship. If the Lord led you to make a decision or you have a question or a need, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at the email listed below, info at theheightsfellowship.org. And we will join you in praying as you take a step forward on your journey with God.